0: Hi, this is Sean Benson from Harvest Church in Warrensburg, Missouri. I want to thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. For more resources, log on to HarvestWarrensburg.com. The last few weeks we've been, we've been wrestling and excavating the truths out of 1 Corinthians 5. I, I told First Service, if I was sitting where you were and you know, the pastor said, hey, we're going to talk about church discipline. We're going to talk about sin and discipline and kicking people out. I don't know that that would have probably had a massive reception on that, thinking, yeah, that's exactly what we need to hear about. But I hope that in the series so far that you've appreciated that it's the word of God that we're excavating, the truths of God and the heart of the Father that we're seeing in what would otherwise be controversial scriptures or scriptures that are often misinterpreted, specifically that of, of 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, by way of reminder, 1 Corinthians 5 is the point where it's the passage where the the immoral believer, the, the believer who is caught uh, in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, where a leader in the body of Christ begins to address that in the corporate setting of, of a church context. It's the only scripture that I know like that. And so it makes sense that we would, that we would take a peek at that, that would figure out what that pattern was. You know, how exactly did that leader address those issues? I, I want to remind you, though, that we're not talking about general sin in the church, and we're not talking about general sin in a believer's life. If we were, how many of you know we'd all be in trouble? Right? There are none perfect. You know, I'm, I'm working. I'm working it. I'm repentant. I'm moving towards Jesus. I look more like him than I did yesterday. Amen? Right? But I haven't arrived yet. The Apostle Paul even said, I, I'm not going to propose to you even for a second that I've arrived. I haven't arrived there yet, but I'm on the journey. And some of you, you're on the journey with me. We're not talking about general sin in the camp. It's not the general sin that has the ability to live on a church. It's the hidden practice sin, the intentional sin, You know that which is celebrated, that which is promoted. We talked about this last week. That is promoted, that is celebrated, that is tolerated or that's released by a leader. And many scholars believe in 1 Corinthians 5, we're actually dealing with a leader. So, So this isn't a general sin. This isn't someone who is struggling and trying to work through even the believer that continues chronically to fall into the same stuff. That's not who we're talking about here. What we're talking about is the believer who has intentionally embraced his sin. Remember, it says sin such as it's even not even found in the world. So this is abhorrent not only to the church, or at least it should have been, it's also to the world. Even the people in the world who don't know Jesus, who are steeped in their own sin, are looking at this individual and going, Dude, what in the world? What were you thinking? Why would you engage in that kind of behavior? We're talking about an individual who knew what he was doing was wrong, but still continued to embrace it anyway. Not the believer who's struggling through their issues. Can you understand the difference? It's a huge distinction as we begin to look to try to create doctrine out of this otherwise usually misinterpreted passage. The, the problem that we come to with 1 Corinthians 5, I think, is largely this. It looks like the Apostle Paul comes out of the blocks pretty harsh, at least from my estimation. It, it, it looks like he's coming out, and, and, and not just harsh, but also contradictory to all of the other passages that he wrote to all the other churches in respect to how leaders should deal with, or Christians in general, should deal with, with sin. It, it, it looks to be, to be contradictory to all of those things, but I want to submit to you, and I think that you're beginning to see as we have journeyed together, that it's not contradictory at all. You know that we are actually charged, as a, as a first line of offense, to approach the issue with humanity in general, with any other individual. That we are charged to approach it in meekness, in humility, out of love, with the aim to restore such a one. That's actually what the Word says, and I want to submit to you, I believe that's actually what's happening as we really get into the depths of 1 Corinthians 5, I don't believe that he was contradictory at all. I believe there was just an invitation for us to go deeper with Jesus to understand what it was he breathed into these scriptures. Right? Are you with me so far? Galatians chapter 6, and also, this is just a bit of a reminder just to bring us up to speed. I know there are some new faces that are out there. I want to make sure that you understand where we're going today as we wrap up really this section. Galatians chapter 6 actually defines for us what love looks like. Remember, we come into these confrontations out of love, motivated by love, with the aim to restore such a one. But it actually defines for us what love is. Can I just submit to you what it is not for a second? Uh, Love is not a, a rebuke bless you, peace to you, be warm and filled, see the power of that, see that, <laughs> silence the critics right here, just like that, <laughs> you know, so we're talking about Galatians 6, defining love for us, sometimes somebody will say something like, well, you know, it's, 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 it's loving, it's loving to rebuke everybody, it's only loving to rebuke everybody if you're coming in humility, meekness, <laughs> gentleness, and, and, and motivated by love with the aim to restore somebody. If you're just simply coming in to rebuke somebody, you're coming in the wrong spirit. You know, so love is defined for us in Galatians chapter 6 as the ability to, one, like, define someone who's walking in a lifestyle of sin, but then to lay our lives down to partner with them for their wholeness and their success. That's actually what, it doesn't say that that love is just rebuking them. It doesn't say that love is just, just kick them out the door. You don't want them in your church. That's not what it says. It says we are called to lay down our lives for the brethren. You know how many scriptures that we have that talk about this? Consider others as better than yourselves. That's a doozy. We are actually called to to lay down our lives and invest our lives in the people that are in our sphere of influence. And I would submit to you that it's in this context of family and, and individual relationships that we actually have the grace to do so. And the desire to see them make it into success. If I don't know you, I may not be as invested, but when I know you, man, I'm so inclined to partner with you to pour out my life with you, to make that investment. It says this is what love looks like. It's not the rebuke. It's not the kicking out. It's not punishment. It's not punishment. It's you investing your life into those who need what you have to offer. And guess what? Everyone in here has something to offer. Somebody in your sphere of influence right now needs what you have to offer. Somebody in your sphere of influence. Like, do you think that God made a mistake? We're just going to rabbit trail just for a second. Do you think that God made a mistake by placing you in the family, in the friend circle, in the community, in the county, in the state that you live in? Did did you think that maybe it was all just your choices? Do we think maybe that God had something to do with it? And if God had something to do with it, if God's breathing on your life and you've been strategically planted here in this place with this sphere of influence, I want to submit to you he did that on purpose because you have something unique to offer those individuals that are around you and love looks like actually offering it. Not just rebuking everybody with your truth blaster cannon. (laughs) That's wrong! Ba-bam! Take that, sucker! You know, oh, you don't like it? Well, the Bible says. That's not... That's not what it defines love for us as, right? And this is an environment where, we're, where we call the gold out of people. You, you want to find dirt? It's pretty easy. It's all around. It's everywhere. You want to find stains in my carpet? Just open your eyes and look. It's all there, right? It, it, it's easy to do that. It's a lot harder to see what God sees and to partner with him to pull what God sees out of people. Man, brother, you're called to more than this. You are called to better than this. Man, stop that stuff. That's not going to serve you and your family well. And I'm willing to intercede over you. I'm willing to be broken with you. I'm willing to partner with you. I'm, I'm willing to invite Holy Spirit to put you on my mind. In fact, I'm right now putting it as a calendar reminder into my phone. So that every morning when I spend time with him, it pops up and reminds me that I'm supposed to intercede for you. I'm willing to do that for you. I'm willing to do it as long as it takes. That's what it defines, it's love in Galatians 6. So anytime you see something in scripture or or someone uh, operating that's contrary to what we've described in the several weeks prior and what I'm saying now, you have reason to question what spirit they're of. Maybe they're just ignorant, but I I would propose many are coming just simply in the wrong spirit. Paul might seem harsh and contradictory when he says things like turn them over to Satan, but we've learned a few things so far in this series, haven't we? I think sometimes people interpret it you know, we've already talked about the contradictory nature of the gaps that exist. For those of you who haven't been with us, we do have everything online for you. I encourage you to kind of go back and review some of that. But there are gaps in the Scripture that if you don't understand that, you can actually come to the wrong conclusions. And sometimes the wrong conclusions look like, just get them out of here. Just, they're no, they're cut them off. Get a, turn them over to Satan. He'll get them straightened out like Satan's ever straightened out anybody. Straighten them into the wrong kingdom is what he does. You know, it's like, that's what it it looks like. But we've recognized that there are actually bits of the, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, the initial letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, it's actually even missing. There's a whole context that existed prior to that we don't even have exposure to. And so what look immediately like gaps or contradictions we've discovered are not gaps and contradictions at all. And we've learned that the Apostle Paul, because of this, actually had great insight into the situation in Corinth. Insight that we weren't privileged to when we read 1 Corinthians, which really is 2 Corinthians, which makes the 2nd the 3rd. You're you're following me. We're missing one. Right There There were gaps that were in there. He had context that he was wrestling with. And he had been wrestling with it, we've discovered, and you'll see that a little bit today. He'd been wrestling with it for some time. And, and so I, I want to diffuse this sense that the Apostle Paul comes off in this chapter, First Corinthians, as being rash or, or harsh in some way. Uh, we've discovered that, that he's not been rash or harsh at, at all. In fact, that he's been wrestling with this behind the scenes, carrying it as a deep burden. And before he ever issues a rebuke at all in this chapter, he precedes it, he prefaces it with his deep, compassionate Father's heart of love. We talked about that just a little bit last week. The Apostle Paul wanted to make it abundantly clear that, that in this letter that he was about to, read, to, about to send, that it might look harsh, but, but you have to understand the harshness in the context of the Father's heart who is deeply moved and grieved by what's happening. And with that, we've understood that the Apostle Paul wasn't actually endorsing punishment, but he was setting a boundary. We talked about this a lot last week. See, we set boundaries around those things that we want to protect, those things that we love. We put boundaries around. He was setting a boundary in this church because we had an individual who was bringing pain to God's sheep. He wasn't punishing him. He was defining what his interactions with him were supposed to look like. Suppose with me just for a second that you owned a shop. And in fact, we have a uh, dry cleaner business right over here, so we'll pick on you, you know? Let's just, let's just suppose for a second that James and his business, by the way, he said he'll do it personally by hand at his home for anybody who really wants to, no, I'm joking, he didn't say that at all. He was scared to death. He was scared to death. No, let's just suppose for a second he has a sign posted on the outside of his business that says something like, uh, no shoes, no shirt, no, no business, no service. Anybody ever seen a sign like that? So is it punishment then on behalf of the store owner to refuse service to somebody under that under those circumstances? Is it punishment? So you've got a beach bum, comes up off the beach, he's half naked, you know, got sand all up. <laughs> Sorry. That's a movie quote that should not happen today. <laughs> see that? That's a filter. Did you see that, that I'm I'm actually doing better. <laughs> he's got sand everywhere and sweat everywhere, and the, the store owner says, hey, uh, uh, unfortunately, you know we we have uh, we have we have parameters here. We have a boundary that we've set here. You know, is he punishing the person who's coming to be a patron of his store? No, no, he's just set a boundary and he's not compromising that boundary. It's not punishment, right? He's protecting his store. He's protecting his people. And the, the the good thing is, there's there's actually a pathway. If you want to be a patron in our environment, you just simply have to put a shirt on. Put your shoes on. It's easy. It's not a big deal. I'm not punishing you. There's a pathway. You just have to follow the pathway. Well, for our believer in the church of Corinth, that drawbridge, that pathway through the front gate was repentance. The believer only have to just simply repent. That's it. So the apostle Paul is not punishing him. He's setting a boundary. He's saying in this environment, you can't hurt people. In this environment, there's a, there's a pathway, there's a prescription for what it looks like for you to have interaction with me and with our people. And this is it. This is the pathway. What you're doing now is not going to work here. You understand? So these are some of the things that kind of diffuse this sense of harshness that we can sometimes interpret as we read through these scriptures. And what I neglected to say is this, I think one of the gaps that exists in 1 Corinthians 5 is that the story doesn't actually end there. How many know that actually the story resumes in 2 Corinthians, the next book that Paul wrote? Yeah. So all, all we get in 1 Corinthians 5 is the can of worms opened up. We were like, okay, wow, there's a big O issue right there in that church. And the Apostle Paul is addressing it. Seems like he's a little bit harsh. We have no idea what the church actually does with his admonishment. What are they going to do? Well, we don't know. Well, we were left off with that. Well, it starts, it resumes in Second Corinthians chapter 2. Did you know that? See, you have to listen to the last part of the story to understand everything else that happened. In 1 Corinthians 5, if you don't have the end of the story, you're going to come to some wrong conclusions. So let's take a look at that this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. We're just going to reiterate some things because the Apostle Paul reiterates some things. He says this, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, n- not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you would know the love which I have especially for you. Can you see the Father's heart just dripping off of the page? You have the Apostle Paul, remember last week we said this was the founder of the church. Like this is the guy who actually laid his life down. The Bible is super clear about this. He laid his life down for her. There's nobody more invested in her success than this man. And he's coming now and he's saying, look, I I, I want to be super, super clear. Even again, as he's, as he's issuing the wrap-up of this issue, he's like, I want to be super clear. Like, I was moved to a place of intercession. I saw this thing happening in your midst, and I needed you to know that if that thing, was, if that thing remained unchecked, it would be the death of you. It would destroy you. And it says he was in anguish. So we understand he was wrestling with this for some time before he ever even wrote the letter. So the Apostle Paul's not being rash. He's been wrestling with it, and his wrestling with that actually moved him to the place of intercession, and that intercession was with tears. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we asked the question, man, when was the last time we wrestled in the intercession in the, with tears and anguish over sin in our lives or anybody in our sphere? And, and, and if, that's, if that's not, What's happening in our lives, I, I want to propose that, that we're not beating with the heart of the Father. There's something we're missing. We've become callous. We've, we've become desensitized. We're bombarded. Every billboard, every magazine, every you know, our kids in schools. I don't know how many times I heard my kids say, it's not that big of a deal. I hear that language at school every day. I'm like, that's fine, but you're not going to see it on my TV. <laughs> yeah. Like, I can't control that environment, although homeschooling is an option. You know? But I can't control it in this environment. right? We're, just, we're bombarded. We're desensitized by stuff. I'm telling you, if we're not moved over sin, if we're not grieving and interceding over people like what we see with the Apostle Paul, I want to say something's wrong. Something's amiss. And we have to go back to the foundations. Well, what are those? Read your Bible and spend time in His presence asking Him questions. Or... Just hang out with him. You know what's perfectly legal? Man, half the time in my quiet time, just, you know, I just, because I have, it's my career focus, so it's a little different for me. I have a whole lot of Jesus and Bible and all those kinds of things happening. I try to read the scriptures every morning, so there's that. But sometimes I just walk with him, and I'm like, oh, Lord, look at that tree. Isn't that nice? And he just smiles on our time together. The peace of God comes in, we just hang out. I don't have to say anything. He doesn't have to say anything to me. I had a pastor once, he said, actually, I was uh, put off by it initially until I got to year 12 and realized he actually may have had some wisdom to offer me. He said, you know, Sean, he said, every counselee that comes in, they've got a marriage that's in disarray. He said, they sit across the desk. He says, the first question I ask them is, when was the last time you read your scriptures? Are you doing it consistently? And are you spending time in the presence of God? He said, if the answer is no to all three of those, he sends them away to do it for a month before he ever gives them any counsel. How many of you know your answers are actually found in Jesus? We're not going to beat with his heartbeat for this wrecked and broken world unless we're spending time in his presence, unless we're, we're remapping our own brain through the renewing of our minds in the reading of the word and the hearing of the word. It's the hearing of what he has to say that should be developing faith in our hearts. And unfortunately, all we hear is the stuff that the world's saying, and we've got more faith in what the wor- where the world's going than what God is saying about it. We have more faith that the church is going to be wrecked and the world's going to hell in a handbasket than we have for the church moving in the place of revival and God breaking in and bringing transformation and healing people. How many of you know there's a billion soul harvest yet, <laughs> yet out there that we need to be contending for and believing God for? We, oh, we, if we're not hearing the word of God, if we're not getting that into our hearts. I mean, Joshua 1.8 says that we don't let anything else like, in our mind or our, our mouth, nothing but the word of God, meditate on it day and night. Let nothing exit your mouth except the faith that's dripping out of the scriptures. He says, and then in this, you'll have good success. Ouch. It's the word. Like, that's the place that we have to get back to and his presence. And I'm submitting to you, if we're not grieved like he's grieving, over sin in our lives, in our periphery, in our spheres, in our culture, boy, we've got to get back. We've got to get back to the basics. Amen? Amen? Verse 5. He says, But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, But in some degree, in order not to say too much uh, to all of you. Well, the Apostle Paul here is not making light of his own anguish. He's not trying to be like falsely humble uh, in in this passage. He's simply saying, listen, I'm actually not in the church every Sunday, but you all are. And so if anybody is going to be deeply impacted, it's more you than me. And he's simply just trying to point that out and draw out the gravity of the situation. Because if you'll recall, when we started out, this church wasn't mourning. They weren't mourning. They were celebrating. What kind of sin has the ability to live in a church? One that's celebrated. And so he's, he's reminded them. He's saying, guys, you've gotten callous. Like This is a huge deal that this is happening, and I'm the only one that's mourning. And by the way, he calls them into mourning saying, well, you should have rather mourned, but instead you were arrogant. And you understand, he's not asking them to do anything that he wasn't already doing. You see that in that previous, he's, in that previous uh, verse. He's, he's in anguish, wrestling, in intercession with tears over this situation. He's in mourning over them. Verse 6. Sufficient for such a one, he says, is the punishment which is now inflicted by the majority. So now what's happening? Is that all right if we go verse by verse? I can't say it wasn't going to happen any other way. <laughs> Sufficient for such a one is the punishment inflicted by the majority. Well, what's happening here? Well, we know this. We know that the Apostle Paul set in elders in every church that he planted. You know, Most churches, this one included, believe in an elder form of government. Okay? So we have elders here. It's not just, not just a, a Sean and Misty show. Well, we have others who bring undergird and strengthen and support and help to lead from behind the scenes. Right? So we know that there was an elder government at Corinth. It would seem that that elder government came together listening to the very same words that you and I are listening to in this letter. And that, that, that they took it to heart. They took it seriously what the Apostle Paul was saying. You know, what, what had they done prior to that? Apparently nothing at all. Had they addressed the issue at all? It doesn't appear that they had. Did they ever preach a message about those kinds of things? It doesn't seem that they had. They were arrogant. They were promoting it. They were celebrating it. And it was beginning to be destructive force in their midst. Sufficient for such a one as the punishment. We're talking about, wait a second. I thought, I thought that this wasn't, wasn't, I didn't think that there was punishment mixed into 1 Corinthians 5. I, I don't believe that there is. See, the, the word for punishment there can actually be rendered a verbal rebuke. So the verbal rebuke that you guys gave is, is punishment enough. And in, in fact, the Aramaic is translated as such. In the Aramaic, it says this, your triple rebuke, so I guess there might have been three elders. I don't know. Your triple rebuke is enough punishment. And the Passion Translation decided to go that route as well. And in that translation, verse six is, is like this. It says, I believe that your united rebuke has been punishment enough for him. So what happened in this church? Well, you know what I think it's saying it happened? I think that the leaders of the church finally woke up and they went and had a conversation with this young man. That's it. They had a conversation. What had they done before that? Nothing. This is the first conversation apparently that they had. And it was evidently a very, very good conversation. Like, so, in other words, they went to him, they confronted him on this sin issue in his life, and he was like, oh God, you're right. I didn't see it like that before. I didn't know that I was leavening this environment like that. And it actually moved him to a place of repentance. But doesn't this sound strangely similar to what the Apostle Paul said and what literally every other scripture on sin says that we're supposed to do? Remember last week? I think it was last week. We talked about Luke chapter, uh, is it chapter? Yeah. Luke chapter 17. It says, if you have a brother who's in sin, rebuke him. And if they repent, then forgive them. So isn't that suggesting there should be a process? Where you at least give someone an opportunity to speak for themselves, to hear what, and weigh what you have given them. Uh, by the way, that's not a license. That some people will take that, license, that, that scripture, they'll make it a, a license not to forgive. Well, it says if they repent. Uh, it's not a license. There's no, no, it doesn't mean that like what you think it means. You have to interpret the one scripture, Luke 17, with the entirety of the Bible. And Matthew 18 says that if you harbor unforgiveness in your heart when you've been forgiven so much by Christ, the Father in heaven won't forgive you. What does that mean? Well, last I checked, if I'm unforgiven, I'm going to hell. That's a big deal, folks. So we're not giving up like Luke 17 isn't a license for you to harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart. The point is... That we are supposed to release forgiveness, but if they do, their, the aim is actually to restore such a one. The point is that we're supposed to give them an opportunity. All of the scriptures on this subject report that we're supposed to give them an opportunity to repent. And that's precisely what we see in the church of Corinth. The apostle Paul, it looks like, when you read the letter, it looks like he's saying, don't even give the guy an opportunity, just kick his butt straight out the door. Forget about it. You don't need to hear, I've heard enough. I don't need to know. I don't need a face to face. Just kick them out. But the Corinthians church didn't seem to do that. Seems instead they pulled away into a conversation. Verse 7. By the way, let me just say this. I like this because I get to say more second service, and there's no Chiefs game, so I have free reign. <laughs> I fear that far too many of us are like Jonah instead of like Jesus. See, Jonah went to this little place called Nineveh. But the only reason the whole whale story exists is because he didn't want to go there because he knew that God was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, that he was quick in love, that he was quick to to recant, that he was quick to, to impatient with people who actually repent. And he was like, no, they deserve it. so he wouldn't go. God sends him in a whale, deposits him on the island. I wonder, I think it seems to me that so many, especially in this social media era where we feel like we're the long arm of God's wrath against every person that says something theologically that's not completely in our little box, right? It feels like we're more like Jonah, who would say, no, I, I'm, not gonna, I, I'm not going to push for repentance and restoration because they deserve everything they get. Well, you know what? You deserve everything you get. I deserve everything that I get. But for Jesus standing in the gap and taking what I deserve to give me what he got as a reward. I get his inheritance not because I was so good, not because I was so amazing, but because he was so amazing. And ha-ha, like, my, how we've so quickly forgotten the mountain of debt that we were forgiven. This is Matthew 18 again. The mountain of debt that we ourselves were forgiven, such that we would be like Jonah and we would be willing, on behalf of God, to retain their sins. I don't want to be like Jonah. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. And you know, it's the strangest thing. Uh, People who were filthy, wrecked sinners, whose righteousness was of filthy rags, flocked to that man. Man, If he was like what we think 1 Corinthians 5 should be like, if he's like we traditionally interpret it, why would they ever flock to him? Listen, we even talked about a story this morning Mary Magdalene coming with her hair and all that. You understand? She was saved at that point. She was already sold out. In fact, that's as much as what it says as you read the scriptures. It's like because she was sold out, she came in and did this stuff. So so, here, <laughs> so even here, this lady's breaking into a meeting that she should have never been a part. That she's wrecking the culture doing strange and weird stuff. And Jesus is like, what this woman did to me today is going to be forever preached in the Gospels. This was amazing. This was an extravagant act of love from this woman whose past is sorted, to say the least. Jesus is inviting all kinds of colors, all kinds of shapes and sizes to come. It's not not just the sinners of the world that he was meek and gentle with. It was the sinners in the church, too. Verse 7, it says, and in fact, let me read 6 and 7 together since we've taken some time. 6 says, Sufficient for such a one was the the punishment or the verbal rebuke which was inflicted by the majority. Verse 7 says, "Uh, So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for them. It starts out with this, Excuse me, with the strange phrase, so that on the contrary, on the contrary to what? I want to submit to you, I believe that what he's suggesting is that it looked like in 1 Corinthians 5, I said you should just kick the guy's butt out the door, don't even give him an opportunity to repent, none of that stuff. But instead, you did what you were supposed to do. Like, in other words, there were things written in between the lines. There were books that they were reading. They understood the heart and the intent of the apostle. They did not understand him to say, just Katie, bar the door and get those filthy sinners out of your church. That's not what, he, that's not what they understood. They gave him an opportunity to Repent. So contrary to what I kind of said in that letter before, you guys actually gave this platform for this person to repent. And now we're talking about his restoration. And lest he begin to believe that his identity is that, like connected with this sinful behavior, I want you to restore such a one. I want you to go after them with love. I want you to to aim everything. I want you to bring them back into the fold. I want you to bring them back into opportunity. Have you ever followed a minister who you held in high esteem? And at some point in their ministry, they they fell. <laughs> talking about falling out of grace, you don't fall out of grace. That's not the way that works, you know. I, many of us we've seen ministers. It's it's tra- oh God, I just I, I see it. Uh, you see something in the news like Hillsong, blah blah blah, which half the stuff you hear is just wrong, anyways. It's not even accurate. So be aware of that, you know. But I just like oh my heart breaks for that stuff. I'm like man, what it does to the body of Christ. And, but you know what the body of Christ does to those people? then they're dead to me. Everything they ever said, everything that they ever did was was worthless. If they had that sin going on behind them, everything they ever said, everything they ever did is is void. You know, we're not reading that in this passage at all. You're talking about a guy who was steeped in a filthy sin that even the world despised. And immediately the apostle Paul is like, hey, he's he's coming through the front gate. He's repented. You know, and, and so I, I, I want you to to I want you to welcome him back in. See, because the, the truth is God can still use him. The truth is this man still has a call on his life. The, the truth is he's probably still anointed. The, the truth is he has something to offer and you have something to offer him. The truth is he's still family and he's not to be rejected, right? The truth is he hasn't disqualified himself. And I suspect that there are people in here today who have grown up with some kind of punishment model and you believe that you've been disqualified. Maybe you even did something last week you shouldn't have done it but you did and here you are and you're thinking to yourself there's no way i'm ever going to fulfill my call there's no way that god will ever be able to use me i'm disqualified look at my life like look at my past look at what i've done look at this sin that i can't seem to get rid of i'm just entangled in it i'm just completely disqualified but guess what the scriptures say something different you're not been disqualified like your ability to disqualify yourself is not bigger than god's ability to redeem you Now let me be clear, you can ruin your life. In Ecclesiastes it says, you fool, why should you cut your life short before your time? Like through your bad decisions. There is the place where you can do that. But listen, we're not talking about people who are going to turn their back on God and say yes to the world and pursue all of those vain things. We're talking about people who are going, oh, they're broken over that sin and they're turning their back on the world and they're saying yes to God in the place of repentance. If you are a repentant person, even if you've screwed up, you are not disqualified. God has the ability to redeem you. He will redeem you. And what we see here is that you still have value. You still have destiny and purpose. This man was being brought back in, the filthiest of sinners. Brought back into the fold with something to offer. Like, do they have to earn your trust again? Yes, they do. Is there a process for restoring them? Do the leaders just throw them back in the But No, that would be unwise. But is everything that they've ever said and done or everything they ever will do, has it been invalidated by the fact that they screwed up? No, absolutely not. That's ridiculous. We have to stop it with this punishment mindset. I mean, think of King David, for goodness sakes. Was there anyone who was a bigger disaster than King David? I mean, seriously, the guy's like, you know what? I'm just not feeling the war today. You know, I'm just going to go let my guys, you know, just die. I'm, just, I'm not really going to lead them today. Just not, just not feeling up to it. I'm going I'm to get into the Playboy magazine instead. Isn't that what he did? Isn't that what he did? Now, now, she happened to be a real life model on the, on the opposing building, but was that not, I mean, was he not still staring at naked women? Sorry, I don't know if there's kids in here. <laughs> right, so, so here's, this, here's this, you know, a porn addict, a sex addict, who decides then to act out his fantasies. He goes and grabs the gal, does whatever he wants to do. Then he decides, hey, that was probably the wrong thing to do. Let's cover all this stuff up by killing her husband. Is there a bigger piece of garbage than King David? Think about it, the man hits all the checks of everything that we would disp- Like this is, you got all the big ones, brother. Wow, you like, like you brought all the guns. You just went right off the deep end and it did literally everything wrong. <laughs> well, what happened? He repented. And Jesus redeemed the whole thing such that David, King David, is the one who is called a man after God's own heart. The biggest piece of garbage in the and this is the Old Testament. How much more those of us who are on this side, where Jesus declares it's finished and his blood's already been spilled, where he's fully satisfied the wrath of God and the justice of God against my sin and every sin I'll ever do from now until the time that I go home. You understand, that's the covenant that we live in now. If Jesus operated like that in the Old Testament, how much more now that he's already died for you? And yet somehow we still cling to this punishment model. They're dead to me. They can never offer anything else ever again. I'm never listening to one of those old messages that used to move my heart. They're dead. No, they're probably just beginning. Because if they were that anointed with that garbage in their heart, imagine what they're going to be when Jesus gets them all cleaned up. Anybody go to the car show yesterday? 220 amazing cars out there. Well, some of them were mediocre, but about that. You know, 220 cars out there, most of them better today than they ever were when they were launched in the 60s. More horsepower, more bling under the hood, and fatter set of tires on those Krager wheels. You know, paint that looks like a mirror, never looked like that, always had orange peel in it. Okay, all right, sorry. I nerded out for just a second. point is this, Jesus is a restorer, not a condemner. And everything that he puts his hands on is better than what it was in the beginning before he got a hold of it. Your days aren't numbered, they're just beginning. Right? Here's the last thing I want to mention this. The Bible says, They outside these walls will know us by our love. Now most of the time we're like, <laughs> just, we, just, we just all get along, we love one another, it's just so good, we're just happy, we have little potlucks, and the people of the world are going to look at our walls and they're just going to want to be a part of our potlucks. It's just going to be, it's just gonna be so, we're just happy, it's so good. And I don't think that's what it was talking about. I think probably instead it was saying they'll know us by, well, and here's the reason why I say that, because as much as it says they'll know us by our love, it also says that if we love those who love us, that we're no better than the world. The world does that. And we, we, we have majored on, well, we just, we just love those who love us, and that's where we stay, and we think the world's going to know us by that. I, I want to submit to you that I think that they're going to know us by our love when we're persecuted by other believers. When we're experiencing pain at the hand of other sheep's, sheep. And... When we're dealing with a guy like 1 Corinthians 5, unmoral believer, and we don't abandon them. And we don't just kick their butts out of the church because we don't want them kind in here. But rather, we decide to do what Galatians prescribes, and that is we lay down our lives for them. We intercede for them. We shed tears like the Apostle Paul did for them. We partner with them to call them into the God-given, glorious destiny that they have. You know, I think when the world looks into the church and he sees us doing that, I think that's when they'll know. And that's when they're going to go, I'd like to go there. I don't know what kind of church you guys want, but that's the kind of church that I want. That's what we've been working so hard all these years to try to create here. That's why when you look around, we have ex-homosexuals, ex-drug addicts, you know, ex-convicts, <laughs> ex-porn addicts, and all kinds of other stuff. Just start asking around. Start asking for some testimonies. There's some, there's some doozies out there. And let me just submit to you, you're more than welcome here because we see the glorious purpose of God on you. Now go get your friends. <laughs> you know? All right, I was gonna do a recap, but I'll I'll cut you I'll cut you loose since it's a little late. Father, we bless bless your people. God, we ask that you pour your spirit out on them such that they would have your heartbeat. God, they would they would bleed your vision. They would beat with your heartbeat. That we would be a church and a people that, that don't walk with eyes of, of judgment with our rebuke canon, but we would be those who are willing to make a laid down life investment and that you would help us, God. If we've been wired with this punishment paradigm and we've been applying that paradigm to the scriptures, God, would you help to to reprogram the way that we think and we could see you as the, the long suffering, the gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, God, that you are. We thank you for who you are. Now we're asking, would you make us like you? (laughs) Because that's how we want to interact with others. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you would like to contact us or would like more information about our church or additional podcasts or resources, please visit us online at harvestwarrensburg.com. We hope to see you soon.